I want you to go on a journey in your imagination with me this morning. Just imagine for the time that you are an above average rock climber and you set your heart on every rock climber's dream climbing El Capitan in Yosemite. It's 3,000 feet of sheer rock with overhangs and smooth surfaces and requires a certain amount of technical skill to do it solo, but you read that the average solo climber is in fact able, two out of three of them in fact succeed and is able to do it. So you say, that's me, and that would be a great challenge, and off you go. And it's day three, and you're sort of up here somewhere. You're hanging in your hammock, there's a little black spot, that's you. And you go to sleep that night, but you've overlooked a very, very important detail. That when you're exhilarated and exhausted, you tend to be a sleepwalker. (laughs) And so you wake up the next morning and you're dangling from the end of a rope. There's blood uh, pouring down your face from a gash in your head. You've broken an arm and both legs and you're totally helpless 15 feet beneath your hammock on a sheer face. Well, what do you do? Well, you start singing the Beatles song. Help, I need somebody. Help me if you can. I'm feeling down and I do appreciate you being around. Help me get my feet back on the ground. Won't you please, please help me? Uh, I can't sing it for you, but you've got to take my word. The Beatles sang that stuff. Well, you start shouting for help, maybe using this song, and there's a, around about dawn, there's a man comes walking by with his little fluffy dog, and he looks up to see where this voice is coming from and spots you through his binoculars, and he shouts, It's okay, I'm coming. And he ties his little pooch to a bush and starts looking for a handhold on the rock. And your heart sinks. It's taken you three days. You're bleeding. You're broken. You need help now. You don't need him to come to your help. Now let's leave ourselves dangling in space there. And let me say to you that this is an accurate accurate picture of your spiritual condition outside of Jesus Christ. This is how every person is in a spiritual sense. And it's an age-old problem. The uh, early Greek philosophers wrestled with this situation, saying if there is a God and he's the God of creation... How can he possibly have a relationship with humanity? And we can put it in these terms. God is spirit. He does not have a body such as we have. He is perfect. That's hard to imagine in our imperfect world and with our imperfections. He's the creator. He's outside of this creation. He's not part of it. He's omniscient, which means he knows everything. He knows what you're thinking right now about me, so be careful. (laughs) He knows your pain. He knows whatever anybody says and thinks. He's omnipotent, 
means he can do whatever he pleases and he certainly created the world and the universe and he's omnipresent, you can never escape the fact that God is with you and watching over you. And on the other hand, here is humanity. Not being spirit, we are material. Uh, We are sinners. And that will be explained to us in our scripture passage this morning. We are created and mortal. And so you can understand the difficulty of the philosophers saying it's impossible. How on earth or how in the universe are these two beings going to relate to one another? And the gap between us is not the 3,000 feet of El Capitan in Yosemite. The gap between us is as wide as eternity. It is only that word which can capture the unfathomable distance between God and man. So I try to capture it in these little feeble diagrams. God is a being of many dimensions. He is spirit and he is perfect. And man, well, is a one-dimensional Dimensional platelet, different shape, no depth to him. That's the difference between us put in a visual way. How did the philosophers answer this problem? Well, right from the earliest times and right into current moments, this is the way that human beings approach this difficulty. They say there must be a series of intermediaries the first one will be a little bit less like God and a little bit more like man and so I take away the depth in that picture the next one will be a little bit less like that one and a little bit more like man and so the color changes and the shape changes and in this long chain of intermediaries you can make it as long as you like put as many people as you like in there you also put the Lord Jesus Christ just as the latest when Paul wrote his letter to the Colossians but nonetheless just one among many and there he is among Cranks and crackpots and gurus and Muhammad and Joseph Smith and any other intermediary, sincere or insincere, fraud or genuine that you can think of, Jesus is just one of them. Now you may be glad that that is not God's solution because actually this is pretty merciless. How do you know that Jesus actually does connect through all these intermediaries to God if he's just one of them. How do you know that any of them actually connect? How do you know there's not going to be a later one, which is what the Mormons say. Joseph Smith came later than Jesus, and so he's more up to date. So we revere Jesus, but really he's a little bit dated. And how do you know that they actually connect you? So it's really a very sad solution, and that's all that man can come up with. Here is God's solution to that. He says, let's get rid of all that junk. That doesn't work. 
That doesn't actually connect us. That actually keeps us apart and puts distance between us. And you can only get to me through the knowledge of this great chain of events and people. And uh, there's no real connection between me and you at all. And so he pays no heed to all of these schemes. And he says, this is one that I need to do myself. And now we get the missing line from the Beatles song, help. Help, I need somebody. Help, not just anybody. Now this is the background to our reading this morning, and you want to bear that in mind as we read, that this chain of intermediaries is in the culture. It's probably getting introduced into the church by people in the community. They may even be converts from this religion called Gnosticism, which simply means the intellectuals, these intellectual people who figured it all out. And these are the people starting to influence the church. And the apostle doesn't reference this, but listen to the reading and you will hear that this is definitely in his mind as he speaks. And incidentally, this whole thing reminds me of that little joke which says there was a man hanging by a thread on the rock face and uh, he'd slipped and fallen as we did earlier and he shouted, is anybody up there who can help me? And a booming voice said, let go, I'll catch you. And he was a bit reluctant, you know, just a voice out of nowhere and another thread of the rope twanged and broke and he said, is anybody else up there? <laughs> so you see here, you're always saying, is there anybody else? And now God says, here's my solution. So I'm going to read this in, uh, uh, here, here it is from the Gospel of John. This is how he puts it, the word or Jesus became flesh. All right. This, this said, this guy here is sort of half spirit and half flesh, but Jesus became flesh and he dwelt among us. He is the image of the invisible God and in him all the fullness of the Father dwells. What a spectacular solution. Now listen for that in Colossians 1 verses 13 to 23. And this is uh, from the paraphrase by Eugene Peterson called The Message. It comes across very fresh and wonderfully. And then we'll refer to the NIV, the New International Version, when we actually get into developing the sermon. So here we go. God rescued us from dead-end alleys and dark dungeons. He set us up in the kingdom of the son he loves so much. The son who got us out of the pit we were in, got rid of the sins we were doomed to keep repeating. We look at the son and see the God who cannot be seen. We look at the sun and see God's original purpose in everything created. For everything, absolutely everything, above and below, visible and invisible, rank after rank after rank of angels, everything got started in him and finds its purpose in him. He was there before any of it came into existence, and he holds it all together right up to this moment. And when it comes to the church, 
He organizes and holds it together like a head does the body. He was supreme in the beginning and leading the resurrection parade. He is supreme in the end. From beginning to end, he's there, towering above everything, everyone. So spacious is he, so roomy, that everything of God finds its proper place in him without crowding. And not only that, but all the broken and dislocated pieces of the universe, people and things, animals and atoms, get properly fixed and fit together in vibrant harmonies. All because of his death, his blood that poured down from the cross. And you yourselves are a case study of what he does. At one time you all had your backs turned to God, thinking rebellious thoughts of him, giving him trouble every chance you got. But now, by giving himself completely on the cross, actually dying for you, Christ brought you over to God's side and put your lives together whole and holy in his presence. You don't walk away from a gift like that. You stay grounded and steady in that bond of trust, constantly tuned into the message, careful not to be distracted or diverted. There is no other message. Just this one. Every creature under heaven gets the same message. And I, I, Paul, I am a messenger of this message. May God bless our reading in his word this morning. We're going to look at three things. The rescued, the amazing rescue, and the amazing rescuer. So let's first of all consider... Uh, yourself or myself dangling 2,000 feet above the valley floor uh, on El Capitan. And here are the three words that the apostle uses in verse 21 in the New International Version. He says that we are alienated, that is there's distance between us and God. That alienation means that we are his enemies. And thirdly, uh, be, as his enemies, we express it in wicked works. You may feel very much that that's a little bit of an overdrawn picture, that you are aware of God in your life. You're not aware of being his enemy. And certainly the wicked works part, you may be able to say, mm, I've done some bad stuff in my life and I have got involved in some wickedness, but... To categorize me as an enemy who's alienated and doing these wicked works just seems a bit far-fetched. Well, I thought that myself with a bit of bemusement during the week, thinking, do I really believe that that's true of me without Christ and of people who do not Christ? And then I remembered that Jesus said you should look at your heart. You remember he said in the Sermon on the Mount, 
you have heard that it was said by them of old time, thou shalt not commit murder. But I say unto you, if you hate your brother and if you call him an idiot in contempt, you are guilty of murder. That changed the whole picture. So I thought, and here I'm going to shock you maybe, I'm going to expose my heart to you and what I would be like outside of Christ And I'm probably going to step on your toes, but remember this is outside of Christ, so have mercy on me in Christ. Outside of Christ, I was a total racist. I despised people of a different color, different language, and a different culture, including in my first visit to America, Americans. Outside of Christ, I am a sexist. I look on women as inferior outside of him, and I consider them as empty and um, as gossipy. Outside of Christ, I despise bratty children, and I despise the parents of bratty children. (laughs) Outside of Christ, I despise bad drivers. And when I'm not, when I've handed over control to, taken away control from Jesus and some idiot cuts me off, uh, I must confess that sometimes a little curse word slips my mouth. Outside of Christ, I look down on boring people, flimsy people, selfish people, and I'm merciful in all of this. In fact, outside of Christ, I have well-disguised contempt because I don't manifest these things, but they are often in my heart, and I don't act them out, but they are there nonetheless. And so we come to ask ourselves, am I of wicked works? Well, I haven't actually done all the actions but I've got this well-disguised contempt and outside of Jesus, I dare say I'm a totally obnoxious person, arrogant, proud, haughty, sneering, judgmental, critical, thinking myself superior and everybody else is just an empty head who spouts stuff that bores me. Outside of Christ. And dear friend, if you look into your heart, you will know that outside of Christ, you too are alienated from God. And if you've never realized it because you got concussed in the fall and you dangling there without even knowing this is your spiritual condition, may the Holy Spirit awaken you right now to the fact that you are actually alienated from God. That alienation is really the fact that you are God's enemy in that you do not acknowledge Jesus as the ongoing king of your life and you are involved in those wicked works of the heart which every now and then spill over and do and cause some great problems in the world. And when we think of it that way, the words of the Irish poet John O'Donohue come to mind. If you think about your alienation, it's like a huge and leaden loneliness that settles on us 
like frozen winter. That happened to you in the middle of the night sometimes? That happened to you at odd moments in your life? It's the truth. The rest is illusion. Now let's look at the amazing rescue. And these words are found in verses 12, 19, and 22. And we know that an amazing rescue requires an amazing rescuer, which we'll get to in a minute. But every one of these words is like an arsenal taken out of God's armory. There's not one word here of these verbs that is like a passive verb and makes you just feel nice. Every one of them rather goes to the heart of the enemy and conquers. And so it starts with us being qualified. Not us qualifying ourselves but we are qualified by Christ to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. We are delivered from the power of evil, from that heart condition where I'm an arrogant, sneering man, haughty and contemptuous. I am delivered from that power of darkness by Jesus Christ. He doesn't just deliver us and leave us on the sidewalk and say, you're on your own now, but he conveys us into the kingdom of the son of his love. And what a phrase that is. Wouldn't it be great to explore that right now? The kingdom of the son of his love. That's where we are conveyed. We who are enemies. We are redeemed through his blood. And this is the grisly part of the crucifixion and of his, his terrible torture and death on the cross. And that for the forgiveness of sins. And so we are reconciled. And notice these words, in the body of his flesh. Remember that other diagram with all the intermediaries? That the first one was sort of mostly spirit and a little bit of flesh. The Apostle Paul goes right to the heart of that heresy. And he says, no, we are reconciled in the body of his flesh. He sort of emphasizes it in a particular way. And so we are presented, and this is a formal presentation that the Son does to the Father, and He presents us holy and blameless and above reproach. So what happens here? Well, you see, the other ones you dangle and you say, help, and they say, Wait a minute, we'll connect you to the chain and through the chain you'll get somehow uh, up there to connect with God. And this one says, he actually rescues us. So it's profoundly different and it's profoundly of God. And that leads us to think of the amazing rescuer. And verses 15 to 17 contain these words uh, and Naturally, the worse the rescue situation, the more you feel that it needs someone with special equipment and somebody who has got special skills to do the task. In 1898, uh, eight whalers were trapped by an early winter in the Bering Sea. 
north of the Arctic Circle. And there were frantic efforts to find the right man to lead an expedition to save them. To find the right equipment, an icebreaker that could go part of the distance and then reindeer that could take the supplies the rest of the distance. Who could do that? Well, here is God's answer to our dilemma, which far, far outweighs the dilemma of those whalers. Here is our amazing rescuer. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the first and only born. That means unique. He is unique. He is the only unique son of God over all creation. He is the creator of all things. He is before all things. By him all things consist or hold together, which is one of the issues that modern science is wrestling with. Why doesn't everything just fly apart? He is the head of his body, the church, the head of Green Tree Church. We are his body. He is the reconciler of all things. And God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in him. What an amazing rescuer. We have the honor and privilege of hearing Jesus speak to his father in prayer. And as we do that, just listen for all these concepts that Jesus expresses to his Father. And uh, in it, he says, remember that when he offers this prayer, it is in prospect of the grisly work of his cross and of the nails and the, the sword and the crown of thorns. And this is what he then does. He spoke these words as he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that your son also may glorify you. I have glorified you on the earth. I finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O oh Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours, and all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. That they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be one in us. That the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you have Give me, gave me, I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. 
Oh, righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and these have known that you sent me, and I have declared to them your name and will declare it, that the love which you loved me may be in them and I in them. Do you notice a little change in this box as we read the prayer of Jesus? Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's where the Apostle Paul ends in this passage in Colossians. And the unimaginable is not that there is this chain of be intermediaries and we've got to work through this whole thing. It's not just that God rescued us and delivered us from the rock face. It's that Christ is actually in you as the hope of glory. That's why this is all in this circle, this embracive circle. God embraces us. And the gospel is that Christ is in you as the hope of glory. I don't know how to explain that other than it's true of my experience. Other than I see it in the experience of those who know Jesus Christ. I can tell you that I often forget that and live as if Christ was not in me. And then that old arrogant, alienated enemy called Anton comes out and expresses himself in evil works. But it's a bit of a mystery, but I can explain something of it to you in this picture. I once went with my brother-in-law into an engineering manufactory where they were producing sheet metal. We entered a shed probably five times as big as this cafeteria, and we stood on a platform about 20 feet above the roller mills and maybe 30 feet back from the roller mills. And in the far side came a giant crane with pincers, and it was holding a big gray object about the size of a motor car, and you could feel the heat radiating off this thing as it came in the far side of the shed. The pincers dropped it on the first roller, and this gray outer skin flaked off probably impurities and there was a fresh blast of heat from this virtually molten block of metal which was dropped onto the rollers which then began pounding it and as it went through the manufactory it got pounded thinner and thinner sparks and fire flaming out of it all the way and what had happened was that the metal and the fire had fused in such a way that you could not distinguish between them. The heat was coming out of it and the sparks were flying and the metal was fire and the fire was metal. Christ in you. There's some way in which God fuses in such a way that we become one. It was in his prayer. It's here in this. Here is the hope of glory. I wonder where you are in your journey this morning. I know some people have maybe been concussed by the fall on the rock face. 
and do not realize that they actually need to be rescued. Oh, I'm so glad to show you an amazing rescue by the only one who can help you. He's reaching out, and you just need to put your faith and trust in him. And for those of us who know the glory of what I'm speaking, let it astonish you anew. Allow it to become your way of thinking. Allow it to have its truth in you. So that God may be glorified according to the prayer of Jesus. I in you and you in me and we in them. So that the world may see your glory.